The healthcare industry is not homogenous, and rural hospitals know that better than anyone. Legislation that paints with a broad brush often leaves rural hospitals unsupported at best and disadvantaged at worst. So, how do rural hospitals and healthcare providers advocate for legislation that meets their needs? Well, with constant attention to what's happening in Washington, D.C., frequent communication with our legislators, and a willingness to dig in to policy development and to speak with policy development experts. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodgeshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 54 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodgeshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, last week uh, we spoke with Carrie uh, from the National Rural Health Association Mm -hmm. about her team's involvement and work advocating uh, for rural health at the federal level. had a great discussion with her, uh, and it was a wonderful opportunity to learn about what's happening uh, in the advocacy that's happening for rural hospitals. And Mm -hmm. as we've shared on this program many times before, of the 130-plus closures since 2010, a majority of those hospitals have been rural community hospitals. It's very concerning for us. And now we get to dig in to this a little bit deeper. That's right. We are speaking with someone who is engaged in this work on a daily basis and has a very intimate understanding of rural health policy, as well as its progression through the system. That's right. A guest today that I receive frequent emails from on those (laughs) alerts. Uh, Josh Jorgensen uh, is Government Affairs and Policy Director for the National Rural Health Association, and we welcome you to Rural Health Rising today. Well, Thank you for having me. That was a very warm introduction. I appreciate it, um, and I'm excited to be here. Well, to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so you can add to that uh, introduction. Uh, Tell us about your background and your work at NRHA. Great. Well, since we're talking about rural, I'll uh, start with my upbringing. I am from South Dakota. I'm from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is... Um, that is the urban area in South Dakota, but I think you would call it rural in almost any other state. <laughs> uh, I'm, very, I'm very aware of that situation, um, but I'm South Dakota through and through, basically. I grew up there, went to school at the University of South Dakota, and uh, upon graduation, I came out here to Washington, D.C. I um, worked at first for a think tank out here called the American Enterprise Institute, and then I moved over to Capitol Hill I'm working for my home state senator, Senator Mike Rounds from South Dakota. And there I did health, education, telecommunications and Native American issues for the senator. But I was really lucky, um, I would say, to get to dive into healthcare policy at a young age for the senator and kind of get to do that work. And given South Dakota, you know, it is uniquely rural healthcare policy. You know, everything um, touches that rural scope. So, um, the issues I had, while they might not be uniquely rural all the time, for us, it always was. And so when I began looking elsewhere to kind of transition my career into, you know, uh, somewhere downtown, they call it here in Washington, I saw a posting for the National <laughs> Health Association. And, you know, I'd worked hand by hand in hand with them over the years, just given uh, membership from folks back home and uh, working with the office. And it was really cool to have this opportunity because it really felt like I was doing the same work just moving to the other side of, of the screen, you know? And so um, it was a really cool opportunity. I've loved it. I've loved getting to know folks like you, work with you all. And uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'm excited to continue this conversation today. Excellent. So now that we've established who you are and a little bit about what you do, let's start with the why. Now we do this on every episode, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So Josh, what is your why? Uh, what motivates you and what gets you up out of bed in the morning? It's a great question. Um, I think the why for me is, you know, I'm from a rural part of the country and um, these issues are really real for me. You know, um, Sioux Falls might have it a little bit more locked in, but, you know, elsewhere in the state where I go, where my friends are from, families from, um, this is a real issue. You know, when we talk about access to healthcare, when we talk about broadband, when we talk about, you know, going to the grocery store, going to get a haircut, you know, those drive times, those issues, they're real things. And I've seen them, you know, really my, my whole life. Um, mm. And it's really interesting. You know, my girlfriend is from uh, Philadelphia. And when I say that our upbringings could not be more different, I mean that they could not be more different. She went to <laughs> she went to school at Temple University in North Philadelphia. And I went to school in Vermilion, South Dakota, a town of 8,000. So it's like oh, just wow. way different, you know. Um 
And when we get to go back, you know, she always makes the comment of this is just so beautiful. You know, you never see skies this big and this for mm. all world. And um, it is. And I always say to her, it is beautiful, but it's part of the reason why I work there is because it is beautiful, but it also comes with its challenges. And there's challenges when it comes to access to healthcare and telecom or, and, you know, going to the store and things like that. And so I guess when you ask me, you know, what gets me up in the morning, I realize that in a lot of rural communities, there's two major employers. It's a school or a school district, and it's a hospital. And if you lose access to one of those, and in our case, what we're talking about today is a hospital or a healthcare infrastructure, um, you know, you lose a lot of that community. You know, I think we've seen it time and time again. If a hospital leaves, you know, soon to go next might be the restaurant or the hardware store or whatever, because you're losing that population base. So, you know, it's really near and dear to me. I want to I want to keep these places open. Not only do people need to continue to have care, but I look at it as kind of the whole of rural community. You know, when we're able to preserve a hospital, we're preserving that community in a way of life. So, Josh, let's start by talking about telehealth. Now, we were thrown right into the middle of telehealth uh, as a small rural hospital ourselves uh, during the pandemic. You know, we we had to make some quick choices. Uh, now, prior to that, we had been working on a lot of infrastructure uh, to try and bring some sort of telehealth to our community. Um, but, you know, obviously, this is a major issue for rural health care for a number of reasons. Can you tell us what's happening with telehealth at a federal level? Yeah, I think what a great question. What isn't happening, right? I mean, I think yeah. when <laughs> when this airs, we're going to have seen what I hope to be uh, some decisions be made. So just so everybody knows, we're airing this a couple of weeks out from when the federal government runs out of funding, which is March 11th. They just passed a continuing resolution. Um, us at NRHA, we see this as a really good opportunity for Congress to extend some of these flexibilities beyond the public, beyond the public health emergency. Um, so kind of Pulling back to March 2020, I think to your point, telehealth was expanded so broadly, virtually overnight. I mean, I think when I was on Capitol Hill, you talked to people in the healthcare industry, you talked to lawmakers, everybody had this general feeling of, hey, telehealth is great, but it was kind of that shiny object on the on the wall that people wanted to touch, but they didn't know how, they didn't know what it cost. When COVID hit, it had to expand overnight. And so now we've been living with it. Um, however, once the public health emergency comes to an end, and, you know, that's a debate for a whole nother story, but I would say that we're probably closer to the end than the beginning of the public health emergency. We're going to run out so. of flex. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yeah. But those telehealth <laughs> flexibilities are going to go away and unless Congress acts. So NRHA is really pushing for Capitol Hill to act now because I think to your point, asking the question, um, there's still a lot of concern on, should we invest in this infrastructure? I mean, if you're a struggling rural hospital and you're looking at, well, everything's tied to the end of the public health emergency. What, what's your rationale for investing a lot of money? What's your rationale for looking into this further? So we're telling folks on Capitol Hill, let's act now, figure out some, you know, some of the kinks that have happened with it. Because like anything in Washington, if it's written in two weeks, it's probably not perfect. So we have some suggestions for what needs to happen, but they first need to just move the ball. What we want to see happen, um, you know, we want to see some of these provisions updated. We want to see rural health clinics and federally qualified health centers continue allowing to serve um, their folks as distant site status, but they need to do it at an updated rate. So we're really asking for parity between in-person and virtual care. I think that's important incredibly important, especially for our rural communities. Um, but we also want to see all rural hospitals brought into the fold, right? Like critical access hospitals need to be brought into the fold here. We need to see audio only stay in place. I'm sure we'll be talking about mm -hmm. broadband today. Um, but until then, you know, audio only is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so there's a lot going on in Washington these next couple weeks or next couple months, whatever you look like. Um, but we need to make sure that telehealth is around to stay beyond the public health emergency. And that's what, you know, we're doing at NRHA is keeping that conversation, because I really do think there's a uniquely rural aspect to telehealth. You know, I think parity is the key word. Right. And Rachel, one of the things that we know, and, and Josh doesn't, obviously he's not familiar with Hillsdale, but, you know, just over into the borders of Indiana and Ohio, which is adjoined to Hillsdale. Um, we we are challenged with the reality that our Medicaid 
uh, does not reciprocate mm-hmm. uh, in each of those respective states. Mm-hmm. And yet people, you know, ha- they receive their care in those other states. And so the biggest concern that we've had, Josh, here is just looking at the funding and reimbursement. And I do know that you and your association have been advocates for rural health. And there's a lot of rural hospitals listening to this podcast today. Um, but that is really when we meet, and we met last week, a group of us uh, rural hospital CEOs. We had our, our call, and this was a hot topic. It's it's okay. We are launching these initiatives. We're spending all this money. You know, where is where is the reimbursement going to come from and at what level? Um, because Rachel's going to talk a few minutes about connectivity. That's a whole other issue. But the reality of how do we get paid to do what we know how to do, which is deliver healthcare services, yet in a non-traditional manner. And so I think what you have been able to do, and I would encourage you on behalf of rural hospitals and, and the plethora of those that I work with here in our state, uh, is to continue to advocate for that reimbursement model to follow those services. Because, you know, to offer those and to fight with insurance companies and then to not have, you know, that parring done is very, very concerning to us when we're on a razor thin margin. Right. Sometimes, you know, when we remove sequestration, Josh, that 2%, uh, this hospital, you know, was already operating at a 2% margin. Our margin's zero. And so that's very concerning. Now, luckily, there's been some initiatives given to give back the, the 2%. But again, that's temporary from what we learned uh, last week. But ultimately, advocating for rural hospitals to have that parity and to allow for that parring, I think, is very important. Well, and so like you mentioned, accessibility is is a big part of this, too. Um, and, you know, I think of, for us, I think of telehealth as um, as a concept. I think of it as, you know, there's two sides to this coin. One is we have patients who can get care from anybody anywhere via telehealth. So they can schedule a telehealth appointment with somebody in, you know, who knows where um, and do that now. Um, so that's a challenge because there's a, a competitive challenge there for us in, in rural since, like JJ said, our margins are thin. So every patient is important to us. Um, also, you know, it affects the quality of their care because they're not with someone who is, you know, actually their their primary physician that they work with regularly that knows their health and all of that. Um, but uh, so that's an issue. And then the other issue is for our patients and our communities who can't actually get connected with telehealth. Um, Like you said, the audio only is really important, but I know there's a lot of work going on right now um, related to broadband and connectivity. So, um, you know, how are you approaching this for telehealth? And also, you know, in in cases where there are other policy issues that you work on that need support outside of what we traditionally think of as healthcare policy, because you don't typically think you're going to see, um, you know, anything about broadband in a healthcare bill, right? Yeah, I mean, Absolutely. I think you touched on a lot of things there, one of which the first thing is NRHA is just we're so adamant that rural providers are able to provide telehealth because exactly what you said, which is the biggest concern is going around rural providers, going to an urban complex, going somewhere else where they're not talking to their physician every day. And mm-hmm. and that's really huge. That's why the parity in, in payment comes in, but it also comes right. in with activity. I mean, that's huge. And that's not just for patients. It's also for providers. I mean, when we're talking about telehealth over the last couple of years, um, I don't think I go two minutes without talking about broadband connectivity with a provider in a rural area. You know, I've been um, yeah. I was on a trip a couple of weeks, a couple months ago. We were up in you know northern Wisconsin looking and, you know, around your neck of the woods. And there's areas where there's just no broadband connectivity. And it's true throughout mm-hmm. so many parts of rural America. And that's the first thing. And yeah, Congress has done a ton over the last year. I think, you know, broadband and telehealth are probably, if you're looking at bipartisan, you know, investments over the last couple of years, those are two of the top ones, right? You know, we can go Mm -hmm. into other, those are hugely bipartisan and because it touches everybody, you know, there's urban communities that struggle with broadband access. There's rural communities. I would say rural has bigger challenges given the vast swath of land that folks have to cover to do that. Um, Mm -hmm. But this fall, we saw the bipartisan infrastructure package passed into law, signed into law by the president. And that included about $65 billion for broadband connectivity to be rolled out. We're really interested in that. We were really excited to see that there was some language included from a bill called the Digital Equity Act. 
And that includes some really good language, making sure that rural is adequately represented. I mean, that's the biggest thing when NRHA comes to the table with broadband. You know, I'm not the broadband expert. There's plenty of other coalitions and folks out in Washington to do that. But we're always saying, you know, we need to have our fair share in rural communities. Folks need to be able to provide these services. And, you know, if telehealth is part of the future, and I think a lot of people would argue it's now part of that 21st century healthcare delivery model, then everybody needs to be able to take part in it. That said, building out broadband into a rural community is going to take a lot of time. I mean, it's a long phase. Every house, I mean, if you're looking at every house, it's going to take years. And Mm -hmm. so until that's a possibility, we need to have that audio only option. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of willingness from folks, you know, at CMS on Capitol Hill to continue that beyond. But we're continuing to say that to folks because it really is concerning. Not only is the broadband part of it, but you're talking about a population in rural communities that's often older and they might not know how to come to an interface to do it. I mean, I struggle sometimes to get onto a Zoom call or figure out how to unmute myself, do things we all do. And we've done it now for years, let alone, Mm -hmm. you know, the first times you're trying to do it. So I think all of this needs to come into it. And then, you know, you have the conversation of where do digital literacy classes come into things? You know, do we start talking about that as potential policy solution? So I think there is so much to this conversation on telehealth and broadband that we can't just say it's been figured out in 2022. I think these are conversations that are going to continue, but that's what we're here for. That's what my voice is out here in Washington is saying that it's not all figured out. We can't just copy and paste the CARES Act telehealth provisions and make sure it's permanent. No, we need to make changes. We need to tweak things and we need to make sure it's here for the future and and make sure that it's positive for everybody. You know, Josh, um, we've recently had Scott Becker on our program from Becker's Healthcare. I'm not sure if you're familiar with with, uh, Becker's Healthcare or not, but it's really a leading industry for us looking at trends in healthcare and and other issues, uh, keeping us current as well in terms of what's happening in D.C. But, you know, one of the goals that we had uh, in Rural Health Rising uh, is to build awareness that leads to action. And when we were talking to Scott, you know, he just recently published uh, some information that 435 hospitals are at risk of closing in America over the next several years. And we know that well over 130 have closed in the last decade. And that's very concerning. It is the reason, the impetus for starting Rural Health Rising. Raise awareness, bring some of our congressional leaders on, talk about the economics of it, talk about the devastation to communities when rural hospitals close. So knowing that, um, and I know that Senator Grassley has worked on issues uh, before relative to rural health. I know that I've worked with our congressional leaders on it and Grassley uh, on some of these issues to sustain rural health. Um, and you know as well as anyone that our rural hospitals are at times either the leading industry and employer of the community or second or third like we are. And so so goes the hospital, so goes the community. And so it's important. To sustain it, so that's the purpose of the podcast. But hearing that number um, out of Becker's is really alarming. And my staff, I sent the uh, article to them. I mean, I was getting a tremendous amount of emails back, like, "Wow, this is unreal. How do we do it? How do you handle it?" And obviously, that comes through a partnership with our legislators, you know, for some uplifts and some other things. So, what kind of legislative and regulatory work is going on right now? related to hospital sustainability. It doesn't matter if they're rural or if they're big, just hospital sustainability. Because out of the out of the 435 forecasters, they're not all rural. Um, so it, what, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you expecting? Yeah, well, I mean, it's terrifying. I, I think, you know, there, let, me, let me start this answer by saying 138 rural hospitals have closed since 2010. Scary, terrifying number. However, there's optimism in that 2021, we only lost two hospitals. So why is that? Well, 2020, we we had a huge investment into the rural health safety net. That's what we call it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We had, you know, provider relief fund dollars come out. Folks were able to get paycheck protection program dollars. There's telehealth provisions. There's increased physician fee schedule payments that came across the board. Uh, Medicare sequestration was delayed. All of this kind of came together, kind of, you know, NRHA's dream, right? You know, we were saying, we've been saying these things for years. Let's, you know, this is how you lift the rural hospital stability safety net. And um, now there's the fear that we're going to go back to a pre-pandemic reimbursement schedule, reimbursement um, types. And so 
what we're working on right now is to continue a lot of these provisions. And for us, it starts first and foremost with Medicare sequestration, continuing that relief. Um, I think, you know, when we say the end of the public health emergency is closer than it is to the beginning, you know, closer to ending than it is to the beginning. Um, I think that's true. However, that doesn't mean that rural hospitals are in a better shape than they were two years ago, right? I think right. there's there's this lift of the of the floor, but it's not necessarily stable. And so we're asking that Medicare sequestration relief be, you know, continued till the end of 2022. We're hopeful that this happens relatively soon. I know it's set to go back into effect on March 31st or, or April 1st, excuse me. Um, so we're hoping to see that first and foremost, you know, in an ideal world, we're just asking for them to completely wipe it for rural hospitals. I think that makes the most sense. As you said, we're already operating on negative margins. It only hurts you further. Um, but, you know, that's a conversation and for another day, something mm-hmm. we're going to have to continue advocating on. Um, additionally, though, you know, we're, we're pushing on ensuring that rural just gets its fair share of all these different programs and provisions coming out of Washington. Um, provider relief fund. You know, there's $178 billion that came out um, for providers. We really worked hard to make sure that rural providers were able to get their fair share. I think $21 billion were, was set aside directly for rural providers, which is, which is really great for, um, for folks and to make sure that they're, they're getting their fair share. Um, and then, you know, lastly, is just kind of upholding the overall safety net. And, and ways we're doing that is, you know, trying to protect the 340B drug pricing program. I mean, um, to say it's under attack would be an understatement, I think, from hmm. from large pharmaceutical manufacturers and things. And, and we want to ensure that program is able to remain, you know, a viable lifeline for rural providers. Um but, you know, additionally, looking at ways to improve the rural health clinic program and improve critical access hospital programs um, and, and just, you know, tweak what we already have, ensure the rural hospital safety net is here, but then look at ways to innovate into the future. So uh, there's a lot of ways we're doing that, but it, it starts, I think, with Medicare sequestration to get continued and, and keep that 2% cut from I would agree. effect. I would agree. And, and I want to thank you. For your advocacy, I mean, there's not a week that goes by, really a day sometimes, where Probably. we're not getting those updates from you talking about uh, this is what's happening and here's who you need to write, write your congressional leaders. Uh, that's important, you know, because in the busyness of our lives here, running small rural hospitals, dealing with COVID, dealing with funding issues, dealing with community perspective, um, we often get caught in that, Rachel. I mean, mm-hmm. we're very busy with the day-to-day operation. So getting that perspective from you, very helpful. And learning this today, very helpful. Right. And, um, you know, I think and I may misquote you, Josh, so please correct me. (laughs) But I think I've heard you say uh, something before in terms of advocating for this that, um, you know, sequestration for rural hospitals, we are, you know, trying to balance a budget on the back of rural health care. And that makes no sense. um, And it's not appropriate. Is that am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I I think you look at the bipartisan infrastructure package, right? Like, I think everybody in America was pretty excited about that, right? Like, broadband's great. We need it in rural communities. But one of the pay-fors for for that was an extra year of Medicare sequestration. I mean, you're really, you know, the people who Medicare sequestration really hurts the most are rural providers in the communities. Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, it's going to impact some other folks, but it's really rural. So, we're building out rural broadband on the backs of rural providers is the way I kind of look at it by adding an extra mm. year there. And, and um, we really tried to to make that message up on Capitol Hill. I think people understand that it is a uh, not a great policy, um, but but it's one of the pay for that they have right now that they they have into effect and they they keep continuing, which is frustrating. Let's talk a little bit about the different designations for rural hospitals because there are a lot of them, and we've kind of we've talked on this program before about the what sometimes feels like a piecemeal approach to um, to rural health, and and do we need to be looking at a kind of rebuilding of the system as a whole, or these different designations and things that can help you know in certain areas, but maybe aren't appropriate for others. But um, you know, so things like critical access hospitals, disproportionate share, sole community, Medicare dependent, all these different designations, and now there's a new one, the rural emergency hospital. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that designation and the characteristics of the rural hospitals that it's appropriate for? Yeah, sure. So rural emergency hospital came about, it's been um, 
uh, idea that's been out there for quite some time. Um, as you mentioned, Senator Grassley worked on this in particular with the Senate Finance Committee, and that's where this really this really came out of. There was other folks involved, but he was really, I think, the the main the main drive behind that. And it's a bill that, um, or it's a hospital designation, I should say, that allows what we consider to be at risk, vulnerable providers to move to an outpatient only facility. Um, we've done some research into it. We don't think it's the catch-all for, for rural hospitals. It's it's probably going to help, you know, 60 to 70 hospitals in the country transition to this model. Um, the reimbursement and what that looks like is still being worked out. And that's um, in this last year's outpatient perspective payment system, OPPS uh, report that came out, CMS did like a 29-question RFI on it that NRHA spent a lot of time on, really gave them a lot of um, feedback. And I'll, I'll say we made a few comments that I think are really important for them to understand and folks to understand in broad. One, these hospitals are not coming to this as this is the shiny new toy of hospital designations. These are hospitals that are at risk to closure. Um, they're operating on negative margins, not thin margins, negative. And this is probably their last resort for that community to come into this. Um, so we're telling them, you know, make sure that the conditions of participation are easy to do. Um, you know, make sure that Folks who transition are able to keep their 340B status. Make sure that telehealth is an opportunity for these folks. Things like that, you know, we're really articulating, don't reinvent the wheel with this. Let's roll it out. It's supposed to come out January 1st, 2023, and do so in a manner that the folks who do transition to this don't later close, right? That this is a sustainable lifeline for them. But then also, we're really pushing that if they do transition, that there's a way for them to transition back. So say they had to transition because they're a critical access hospital, they transition, allow them to transition back if they can go back to a critical access hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so we just see it as a lifeline resource for these for these communities. And we're hopeful that uh, that CMS follows that, that advice. And we'll probably learn more over the next couple months as they roll out regulations for it. You know, so one of the things that we learned through the pandemic, uh, and of course, there's always lessons learned. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that came out was really the strength and the service of rural hospitals mm -hmm. and in their position in their rural communities. It really did. I mean, we, it was us. There was there was no big system. Uh, no one was coming to us with a five point plan. No one was telling us how to take care of the patients. We had to figure it out. You know, early on uh, during the pandemic, our governor of Michigan shut down surgeries, elective surgeries. It was very concerning uh, because access to patient care was diminished, and far greater outcomes occurred as a result of shutting those down. Uh, and we had to fight. And that's, we weren't fighting because we are, you know, the great capitalists saying we've got to make all this money. It was the reality that we know poor patient outcomes would occur if they do not have access uh, because he's, and, and look what happened. We, we watched it. I mean, months after, you know, campaign after campaign from Michigan Hospital Association to the governor's office saying, oh, don't neglect your health care now. Right. Um, and so we, you know, we had to figure it out, Rachel, mm -hmm. and we did. And and we, you know, we wrote uh, some pretty sharp letters to uh, the governor and to others saying that we in rural health know how to run health care, you know, and let us do that. We have for 100 years masked up during surgeries and kept infections out of surgical procedures. Uh, we know how to do it and we need to take care of our patients. So the strength of rural hospitals, I think, was highlighted more than ever or Sadly, some hospitals that couldn't step up, you know, they their demise. And um, we witnessed it here, a ground swelling of people in our community. We we passed out. Was it a thousand signs? Um, I want to say twelve hundred. Twelve hundred yard signs that were gone. I mean, like rapid fire that said we support our local hospital you know, in our hospital heroes. And in our community, there was a ground swelling uh, to support us. There was cards and gifts and you name it. Um, so the strength of rural hospitals was really highlighted during the pandemic. And uh, NRHA has done some work uh, to make sure that the rural voice, you know, beyond just the local communities are heard and that needs to be considered during, uh, beyond just the health crisis. It needs to be constant. And so it highlighted for a very brief moment 
the challenges of rural health. And now we're starting to see segment after segment of now what's rural health facing? Oh, the cost of having travelers. Oh, the, you know, the locums cost. And so now we begin to have some pockets of highlight of rural health that we've been struggling with for years. Um, so can you tell us about how, you know, that voice is heard? Uh, and in those venues, you know, during the pandemic, you know, what what was being done, what was being said? And you've already talked about, you know, what you're doing in the forecast model, you know, what you're working on. But during that pandemic, your role changed, right? What you were doing and the advocacy you were doing, probably from home, uh, little access to Capitol Hill, I would assume. Uh, and we we all had to do something different, just like rural health did. So can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think everything's changed. You know, it, it's so it's so weird. You know, advocacy. You know, the the healthcare system. Everything's kind of changed a little bit, and there's so much more of a virtual standpoint. You know, sometimes I, you know, I was looking back on you know memories on your phone that come out and things, and I got mm-hmm. one from two years ago today, and it's crazy to think of you know. Um, what, what we didn't know then, right? Like I was going mm-hmm. to work every day, nine to six, you know, didn't have a work laptop to take home at night. And, you know, yeah. you just left work at work, right? And and so things have changed. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, you talk about the need for, for rural to be represented. I think um, rural figured it out right away. And, and you know, folks in, in Washington and, and helped try to, try to disseminate that information. However, I don't know if it's always... Uh, great or, or tailored to rural in the way in which we wanted to see. And, and one thing that mm-hmm. became particularly clear to NRHA right away um, was that a lot of agencies out here in Washington have a rural voice, right? HHS has their federal office of rural health policy. Right. USDA, of course, has such a huge rural focus, but they also have something mm-hmm. called like the Rural Health Liaison, for example. And, and there's all these different subsects. One thing we noticed right away, though, was CDC, where we become so reliant on CDC, and that's fantastic. They don't have an office of rural health within the CDC. And we kind of sat there and said, wow, you know, this has been something NRHA has been talking about for years, long before I got here, but something they've been talking about needing. But I think it really came to light, to your point, you know, we're talking about information dissemination, information gathering, both things going in and going out, but rural's not represented. Of course, they do so much at CDC in the rural lens. I'm not going to say they don't, but they don't have that office set up to really look at rural health and and what's needed and what's not. So over the last year or so, once, you know, the, um, I hate to say it this way, but the immediacy of the pandemic went away a little bit and we got into 2021 and we said, okay, we're living with this for a while. We said, let's look at this opportunity now to create this office of rural health. So um, NRHA has really been working a lot with folks on Capitol Hill to do that as well. Um, and, and we're optimistic to see that set up. And essentially that would just create the guideposts of, you know, what does rural look like, you know, when grant programming comes out to ensure rural is adequately represented, submit things, you know, down to rural providers or back up from rural providers and make sure that there's that voice and, and communication to go two ways for rural in particular within that agency. So last policy issue to kind of get to today um, and shifting gears, but one issue that we talked about with Carrie that I also happen to be personally very passionate about, having just uh, had a baby 11 months ago myself, which I can't believe, um, (laughs) but is maternal health parity. We have talked several times here on Rural Health Rising about um, you know, the challenges for rural hospitals to keep their OB units and their birthing centers open um, and active Mm -hmm. uh, and when they're not, of course, that causes a major issue for um, women who are pregnant mm-hmm. and, um, you know, during their pregnancies, the care that they're receiving or not receiving, as well as when they are giving birth and even more seriously when there are complications. So um, how is NRHA looking at this issue and what policy or regulatory initiatives are on the table right now to address it? Yeah, you know, um just kind of referring back to what we talked about earlier, you know, there's 453 hospitals at risk for closing. There's 138 hospitals that have closed in the last 12 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst case scenario is the hospital closes. The little bit better scenario that happens way too frequently is services get removed from a hospital. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, and we've seen OB services be removed from rural communities at alarming rates. Um mm-hmm. And, and, and that's something that's really scary. You know, over the last couple of years out here in Washington, there's been increased focus on maternal health, 
because, you know, the United States just doesn't have the outcomes that we should have, I think, on maternal health. Right. And in rural communities, it's particularly glaring. I mean, if you look at the rural versus urban rates, it's it's devastating. Um, and so that conversation has been really important out here in Washington. It started to move um, this fall. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. The Build Back Better plan was being oh, discussed. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? Um, what was, yeah, I, 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 we could go into an hour conversation on that. But no, so a big part of that was a bill called um, the Momnibus. And that was a maternal health package that was really devoted to improving America's maternal health care outcomes. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't a ton of rural included in that package. So throughout the fall, you know, Carrie and myself and NRHA, we really tried to make a push to say, you know, rural needs to be included. Let's look at the data happening in rural. You know, there's a lot of times the disparities that folks talk about geographical oftentimes hits race and ethnical ethnic disparities at a weird and really unfortunate intersection in rural communities. And this is one of those areas where the outcomes are unfortunate for maternal health. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, should the Build Back Better gain legs again? You know, we're really pushing that they continue the maternal health conversation, include rural as part of, you know, equity and, and ensure that is adequately represented. Um, but additionally, there's line items. There's something called the Our Moms program within HRSA that provides grant funding to set up rural maternal services in various communities that we're hoping to see uh, adequately funded in the upcoming appropriations package. And then another program called the Rural Moms Act, um, which was introduced this last year that sets up other grant programs and kind of continues that conversation and ensures that rural uh, maternal health is part of it. And so, um, we do a lot of work on this issue because it's really um, a glaring. I think it really shows the um, the glaring healthcare outcomes between rural and urban, and mm -hmm. it's, it's one of those issues that really is so important. So we do a lot of work to try to improve maternal healthcare, you know, access in communities first, and then you know support the access that is there. So you mentioned grant programs. Was anything that was in the Build Back Better plan or, or any of these other acts related to reimbursement? Because, you know, one of the biggest challenges, I think, in rural in general, obviously, is the high Medicare and Medicaid population and the lower reimbursement rates that come with that. But for OB in particular, it's Medicaid because you don't have, you know, a Medicare population that is a high user of your birthing centers and your obstetrics units. Right. Um, so with that, is reimbursement part of that conversation and, and part of any of that policy that's being worked on? Yeah, it is. Um, reimbursement's always important for it. You know, unfortunately, with the Build Back Better, um, it was just so targeted. Um, and a lot of that was grant funding. There was some with the reimbursement, but a lot of it was grant grant funding targeted towards various communities. Um, and that's why NRHA wanted to shift that conversation just to ensure that rural was right. part of it. Um, you know, I think I think you're absolutely right. You know, when this comes back up, we need to start looking more at reimbursement, ensuring that Medicare and Medicaid are able to, you know, adequately cover those services. Um, but for the time being, you know, our voices, let's just make sure that rural is included in this conversation and 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 tweak it when it comes. You know, I, I do think for years we've been talking about, you know, there's issues that come and go. Um, out here in Washington, I feel like a few years ago, it was opioids and substance use disorder. And there was a lot of attention to that issue. And there should be and there should continue to sure. be. There was telehealth and broadband conversations and a lot of attention has been given to that. I think this is kind of that new topic where a lot of folks mm -hmm. are starting to look at it and want to get something done. So I think we're at the tip of the iceberg for this conversation. I think it's going to be larger. I don't think any one policy is going to be the, the driving force of the day to ensure that outcomes are changed today. Um, so I, I think it's something where NRHA is going to rely a lot on advocates over the next few months to ensure that um, we have the correct policy and one that actually benefits mm -hmm. rural. Right. Because it seems to me like, you know, the the high proportion of Medicaid is a primary driver of the closure of these OB units because that service line itself is not profitable. So when you're looking for something to cut for a hospital that's struggling financially, that's what happens. And so, you know, grant funding and grants are great, but if the real driver of the problem is reimbursement, you know, it seems like that can be a little short-sighted, which it sounds like is what you guys were trying to to communicate. Mm -hmm. You know, believe it or not, our time is coming to a close here, Josh, and we could spend hours 
talking to you. I, I do want to make a few points, so before we close, if I could, not not so much even soliciting a response from you, but now that I've got your captured attention uh, <laughs> to share with you, you know, the perspective from uh, Hills, Hillsdale Hospital, but not only Hillsdale Hospital, but also some of my colleagues that we've had on this program. Just not too long ago, uh, we had a CEO of a small hospital, uh, Critical Access Hospital up north, and she uh, has been struggling. She struggled pre-pandemic. She struggled through the pandemic. Um, you know, very. She got the protection uh, program uh, put in place. She's had you know some some funding uplifts from PERF, but at the end of the day, she's struggling. Mm-hmm. A few days cash on hand, in fact. And a lot of our sister hospitals are facing that right now. And you know, we're getting a tremendous amount of pressure uh, in these rural communities from what is called mergers and acquisitions. M&As. And, and I'm going to tell you that heavy on our minds uh, are the evilness associated with that concept that in order to solve rural health problems, let the big systems come in. Now, I'm not soliciting a response because you have to you have to dance a delicate, and I understand this, line here. But at the end of the day, what we have to recognize is that mergers and acquisitions hurt communities, notwithstanding the fact that uh, I think just about the last three presidents said that, you know, we're going to have a sharp eye towards those because of the Sherman Antitrust Act and, you know, the violations potentially of Stark and uh, the price-fixing Department of Justice and you name it, but they've continued and at alarming numbers. In fact, here in Michigan, the biggest deal that has ever been brokered was signed two weeks ago uh, with a big system. And I won't name Beaumont, but a big system. And so (laughs) as a result of that, um, we know what happens. Small hospitals are squeezed out. Uh, Prices are under significant review. Uh, You know, these are these are very diplomatic. I know. Thank you. These are hospitals that own their own health systems themselves uh, in terms of. Health insurance? Health insurance companies, yeah. Health health plans uh, themselves. And, you know, it's concerning for us because when we talk about the struggle of rule, um, you know, we we know what happens when a merger and acquisition occurs to a rule. The first thing they get rid of, as Rachel indicated, is the obstetrics department. So we feel fundamentally uh, and and passionate about the fact that, that obstetrics and mental health which are the two probably most underserved in most communities are the most important, and yet and most the, frequently closed, and most frequently closed when those occur. So access to services decrease. Uh, the hospital becomes nothing more than a landing pad uh, to crop out patients, and in communities like ours, Josh, uh, we don't have public transportation. Uh, in fact, we have Amish, right, and horse and buggy. And uh, they're not going to be driving two hours in their horse and buggy, uh, you know, for two days journey to get to another facility. And so, you know, our, our request is, you know, the answer is not mergers and acquisitions, which hurts communities, hospitals close, economic infrastructure is destroyed, you know, lives are destroyed, and ultimately the, the, the community's in peril. But the answer is through initiatives that you've taken, you know, the advocacy work for sequestration. Uh, the advocacy work for certain uplifts. Now, to your point, 21 did bring about fewer closures because there was this temporary stopgap method, but it's about ready to to be over. Uh, you know, we're looking at stock market concerns. A lot of hospitals use that as unrealized gains. That's important. But when that crashes, you got some issues there as well. Uh, and then looking at just a tremendous amount of challenges with recruitment. And so I'm here to say, you know, looking at all those things, Merging acquisitions, bad, um, but also there's there must be some regulation put on these companies that are travelers because what's happening, and Rachel, Rachel describes it best, you know, they're creating the crisis and they're supplying, you know, the, the staff by taking our staff, creating, uh, you know, a, an environment where we have to pay $175 an hour to buy back our staff. Who they're going to pay a hundred dollars an hour to? When I normally well, pay we're just them. buying back somebody else's staff because then it yeah. looks a little better than it if looks we a little back better. Our own staff right, as it looks a little better. So we buy a county over. And I just want to—I I, want to just share with you that the advocacy work. Twelve CEOs were on this call Friday. Uh, most of them rule. Some of them tweener hospitals. Some of them critical access. But ultimately, every concern 
on Friday was relative to this issue. Recruitment bonuses of $50,000, staffing agencies taking those employees, paying them $100 an hour, that has to be fixed at some level. There has to be some regulation, in our opinion, put on this industry uh, in order to level that off because otherwise, mark my words, in a year and a half, it'll all crumble. You cannot sustain $100 an hour in a community like ours where 70% of my payer mix is Medicaid and Medicare. Right. So on behalf of rural hospitals across Michigan, I'm not going to say America. They, they're on their own, right? They can talk. <laughs> but uh, in Michigan. Call us. You can be on the show. You can call us and be on the show. In Michigan, you know, we are struggling with these real issues. And the answer isn't just be swallowed up by the bigs. Uh, it is how do we set limits in place uh, so that we do not have this type of gouging? And that's something I would ask that you take back to, to you know, the Hill uh, that as you're talking to your congressional leaders uh, and, you, and among all the caucuses, this should really be a bipartisan approach, in my opinion. This this doesn't have to be restricted to one party. Uh, it's that we've got to have those limits on there. Do you know, Josh, if um, if there's been any additional progress or information since the um, letter was sent by a number of uh, members of Congress that signed it? Um, asking, I believe they were asking the White House to investigate the the potential for price gouging having been occurring with these traveling agencies. Do you know if there's been anything happen? Anything's happened since then? I haven't. I don't know. You know, and I, I think to that point though, there's a lot of folks who are really wondering what's going on out here in Washington, and I think it's you know what what the appropriate policy solution looks like, and you know. Right we can get into can the administration step in and, and do anything or does Congress need to step in? Where, where is that? And where, where does jurisdiction fall? Um, and, you know, like, what is the issue? You know, is it a judiciary issue? You know, what is it? It's, it's an interesting um, predicament that is, you know, really hurting rural providers, as you mentioned. And it's something that, you know, we're, you know, keenly aware of and, and talk about constantly, you know, I think workforce and is, probably the issue Carrie and I and NRHA talk about the most. Um, And this is a really unique issue within workforce, right? Because you're not even just talking about like, we need more docs, we need more nurses. That's all true. But we're talking about how are we getting them? And it's through Mm -hmm. traveling nurses now and and the prices have gone up. And so the policy solution to it is um, something that needs to be figured out. And, you know, we're we're, going to be part of those conversations. Agree. Well, thank you for your advocacy work. We truly appreciate it. Um, I know that just laboring away in D.C. or other places uh, around the country, sometimes, you know, it's a thankless job. Uh, You're taking on some significant giants. And I want you to know, on behalf of Hillsdale Hospital and our colleagues uh, throughout small rural hospitals in Michigan, we say thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for the timely notifications. I was sharing with Carrie last time we spoke with her that uh, we found out about some of the CMS mandates uh, through your association first, even before our own. And uh, we appreciate that work that you're doing, uh, keeping us informed, uh, blowing up our inboxes. We appreciate that. Uh, and a lot of good information that's in there. So thank you so much. And thank you for taking time today uh, to talk to our listeners, you know, about the critical nature of healthcare in rural communities and what you're doing to advocate for it. And before we close, we'd like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that are unique to rural life? And it sounds like you come from a rural environment. Just out of curiosity, how big is your is the town that you grew up in? Sioux Falls is about 150,000. All right. It's well, big. My, that's big. That's big city. No, living, yeah. Yeah, I, I said it, but that's that is our urban city. Yeah. In yeah. Right. right. I mean, that's right. Like our that's our Minneapolis. That's our Detroit. I mean, All right. Right. It's, it's it's not that. But to answer your question, what is my uniquely rural? Because I was thinking about this when you asked the question. Um, when I think of rural, I, maybe it's because I'm from South Dakota. I think a lot of people would share this. People think of Little House on the Prairie. And oh, yeah. I am from South Dakota. The uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder house is in DeSmit, South Dakota. So it's about no way. 100 miles from from my hometown of Sioux Falls. So this last summer, um, I brought my girlfriend and we went up and they do a pageant every Sunday night in July. And we went to the Laurel Ingalls Wilder pageant <laughs> where the town puts on a play. Um, 
So we're sitting out there. They have the, you know, uh, horse, horse and buggy wagons. You can go around in a big circle and ride it. And uh, we were sitting out there watching the play. And it's the most unique. It's only rural has this kind of weather, I swear, where we were sitting right on the rain line. So we're Mm. watching this happen. (laughs) The rain line is a cornfield over, and you can see it pouring not two mm. football fields away. And it's sunny on the other side, and we're watching this play. It was very beautiful, very, very, very unique. And uh, my girlfriend, as I mentioned earlier, from southeastern Pennsylvania, was absolutely shocked at what was going on, just the whole situation, especially the weather. She was like, why are we not at home right now. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. So that is my uniquely rural. If you're ever in South Dakota, Laura Ingalls Wilder has a beautiful place. And if you're there in July on a Sunday, the pageant was spectacular. Now, prior to meeting you, Josh, had she ever heard of Little House on the Prairie? Yeah, she had because her oh, wow. her mom loved it growing up. I wow. guess it's, it's a generational thing. Maybe It's a generational thing. Yeah, South Dakota, it's unique for South Dakota, I think just because of the location. So we would do like school field trips there. Yeah. Um, but I do feel like if you're in Florida, you probably don't know much about Laura Eagles Wilder. Yeah. Well, even in Michigan, you know, my, my, my wife, that was her, that's her favorite program. Right. So she's now streaming. Her favorite this. program. How it, old are you, JJ? It's, it is her, it's her favorite program, program. whatever. It's her TV favorite show? show. I'm sorry. I'm 47, Rachel, but you know, it's her, it's her favorite show. All right. And uh, says Miss Asparilla, but it's her favorite show. And she turned it on a couple months ago, right? And our youngest daughter comes downstairs and she's almost 16. And she's she goes, what is that? <laughs> and my wife looked in amazement and said, what? She goes, what is that? Why is that? What is it? Why is that black? What is, what is this? Is this a joke? Is this? And my wife says, well, this is Little House on the Prairie. What's Little House on the Prairie? That's a, you know what? It's a wonderful thing to be in rule, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because it's just phenomenal when you can think about, we live Little House on the Prairie. We still have wagons right. and horses traveling up and down the roadways. It shouldn't have looked that unfamiliar it, That's to what her, I told right? her. I said, this is Camden, where I grew up. So, I mean, it's no big <laughs> this deal. This is a documentary. <laughs> this is a documentary of, there I am. There I am. Anyway, Josh, it's been great having you today and uh, really appreciate the work that you and your team are doing. Uh, Continue to fight for rural health. Uh, We'll be right behind you. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you all. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com. It's been an important issue. I think you said about talking about. Did I really? Mm-hmm. All right. Can I try that again about, about yes, talking you can. about? You can, about? you can try that about. Are you about talking about? Okay. I'm, I'm about right. done. All right. You Thank can. you. Okay.